Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From wherever you are, around the world, around the world, welcome to the Circle of Insight, a show that explores the many facets of human behavior and the wonders of the human mind. And now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome, everybody. Well, today I have a great guest. I'm really excited about talking to Professor Kevin B. Smith. He's a professor of political science at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's an award-winning teacher and author of nine previous books. But we're going to cover one book in particular, and it's called Predisposed, Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of Political Differences. And it couldn't be a better time, could it? So this is going to be a fascinating book. He's also got some updated information since he wrote the book. So I'm really excited to learn about that as well. So let's not waste any more time. And welcome to the show, Professor Kevin Smith. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Great stuff. Um, so let's get started right away here, Professor. Uh, tell us, when you wrote the book, what did you start finding out? Well, I mean, the background of the book, where we were coming from, is that, you know, if you take uh, all the sort of like traditional approaches to explaining political attitudes and behavior that have been used in political science for the past 50 or 60 years, at best, we can explain 20 to 30 percent of the variation in those attitudes and behaviors. And one implication of that is that either our statistical models are correct in the sense that 70 to 80 percent of the observed variation in political attitudes and behaviors is just kind of random, it's just a product of individual circumstance, or we were missing something. And so what was that something that we were missing? And you know, if you read, you know, especially what's been going on in psychology for the past 40 or uh, 50 years, one obvious place to start looking was in people's biology. I mean, it is fairly non-controversial to say that certain aspects of your biology and your psychology and, you know, some biologically linked aspects of your psychology um, help drive your behavior. So that's mm. where we started looking. <laughs> Exciting stuff. Very good thing. One thing, folks, again, the book, you can get it on Amazon. And so we're going to get dig deep into this now. So one of the things you had mentioned in your book is that the biology predisposes us to see and understand the world in different ways, which I really like that because there's a lot of things that influence how we perceive our world. And obviously the media plays a big role today compared to 100 years ago. Um, our friends, our family, whatnot. So how does biology influence how we perceive the world? Well, I mean, think of it like this. I mean, everybody knows people who have different tastes. You know, some people like the taste of cilantro, and some people think it tastes like gasoline. And that is, I mean, 
mean, that can partially be a product of environment, but there's also clearly an element of biology um, involved there. Um, you know, in this case specifically, your, 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 your taste buds. And um, something similar seems to be going on with the way that people, you know, for lack of a better term, taste and perceive their environment. There are certain aspects of our environment that we are just innately, um, you know, without even thinking of it, we're more predisposed to pay attention to those aspects of our environment. And some of those predispositions clearly seem to map onto politics. Um, for example, disgust sensitivity maps onto certain political attitudes, and that's a fairly robust finding. Um, I mean, there have been multiple studies done by multiple labs using multiple different sorts of measures of disgust sensitivity. And, you know, while it's not a 100% hit rate, the, the, the clear general inference to take from that body of, of work is that people who tend to be more disgust sensitive tend to lean more conservative on issues like immigration. Okay. So let me ask you this. Is there anything that could change that predisposition, the changing of the def definition and experience? Let's say if we stay with the immigration, maybe an experience with an immigrant, um, change of policy or a newfound fact, anything at all that could alter that predisposition? Oh, sure. Um, you know, one of the things that we try to be really careful about saying is that nothing in our work removes the, the, the fact that people have agency. I mean, mm. you can have a predisposition, which is essentially just a gut feeling. And this is the way that, you know, most people seem to um, think about politics. Um, it, it's not based on a, a rational deep dive into the pros and cons of an issue. What? Are Basic, you serious? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, go figure. You know, um, uh, Edmund Burke turned out to be right. It was, and, and David Hume turned out to be right. It was the the passions that, that, that guide reason rather than reason guiding the passions. And so what most people do is they have some sort of emotional reaction. They feel in their gut this is right, wrong, good, bad. And then they use their conscious cognitive capacity to justify that emotional reaction. Well, there's nothing to prevent anyone from engaging their cognitive capacities and thinking through something rationally and coming to a different belief and attitude than the one that they were predisposed to hold. I mean, the great difficulty there is it's really tough to argue yourself out of something that you're emotionally attached to. Well, that's a great point. And I'm glad you alluded to that because some of the listeners out there may not understand um, heritability, genetics, biology. But it's good because it's not deterministic in nature, so it is, you don't, you're not stuck this way for the rest of your life, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah, one of the things that we sort of like constantly have to um, uh, remind our critics is we've been accused of being genetic determinists, and, and that's <laughs> a, a label that we reject wholeheartedly. Um, you know, political attitudes and behaviors are inherited. I mean, the evidence for that now is overwhelming. The evidence is 
so strong that I think the burden of proof now rests on those who would disagree with that viewpoint rather than those who are um, rather than those who are promoting it. But just because it's genetically influenced does not mean that it's genetically determined. Your genetic makeup predisposes you towards certain things in your environment. It doesn't, um, you know, predetermine that you're going to have a particular attitude or behavior. Do we have a correlation number for the for disgust? Um, off the top of my head, I can't. I mean, these, these are correlations tend not to be huge because we're talking about human behaviors, but somewhere along the line of a correlation of 0.3 or 0.4 with um, uh, ideology and disgust. I mean, don't quote me on that. I haven't got a study right in front of me, but it's it's something like that. That's higher than I Um, imagined. But if you look at the heritability of political attitudes, there the numbers get pretty eye-popping. 60%, 60%, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the observed variation in political attitudes can be attributed to genetic influence. 40 to 60? 40 to 60%. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it is, it, it, it is a lot. It is a lot. When we first started doing um, sort of like behavioral genetic research looking at political attitudes and behaviors as the dependent variable, I mean, we got a lot of um, a lot of criticism simply because those numbers were so high. But, you know, there's been lots of people who have done this sort of research now using different data sets and, and different samples from around the world, and they all triangulate on essentially the same conclusion, that between 40 and 60% of the observed population variance and in, in political attitudes, certainly in things like uh, ideology, is under genetic influence. Wow, that's, a, that's shocking. That's pretty high. What other um, attributes did you notice that people were predisposed in regards to politics? You mentioned disgust. Anything else? Yeah, there's there's a whole range of things. And, you know, the things that we were initially fascinated by were things that have nothing to do with politics. Hmm. Like we did, you know, we've done a number of studies where we've looked at that seems to be systematic differences between conservatives and liberals on things like their tastes in art or their taste in novels, their taste in music, their taste in sense of humor. And again, you know, these differences aren't cut and dried. It's not like um, all the conservatives like Jeff Foxworthy and um, all the liberals like um, uh, Dave Chappelle. I mean, there's plenty of crossover there, but you still get a pretty steady correlation between those preferences and ideology of around 0.2 or 0.3. And I don't really want to get too much, <laughs> and it's going to be kind of weird to say this, but I don't want to get too much into the weeds with politics, especially current with the current environment. But you, you kind of alluded to something there that made me think about how we're starting to see a definitional change almost in what a liberal and conservative is. We even see a fraction, uh, a, um, a fractioning of both parties going into a little bit more liberal, going to more conservative. So we almost have like these four parties kind of playing with each other. Uh, now that you have read, you wrote the book a few years back, do you see that possibly changing anything that you've written? 
Yeah, I'm not sure if it would change it. I mean, the political environment has definitely changed. Um, I mean, it's I mean, it's not like you know when we wrote the book. It's not like the political environment was exactly you know love and bubbles and comedy and civility. <laughs> um, but we've certainly seen less of that over the past few years. And I mean, the current political environment is one in which there is less. I don't know what you would call it less of an appeal to rationality that's true there it, it's a political environment that um effectively not just gives license to our political aid it, it, it sort of like positively encourages it um <laughs> and you know not just I mean, in some ways, it's a political environment that invites and encourages the, the worst of our gut-level reactions, our predispositions. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I having, political, having political differences with someone has always been a little tough. Sure. Um, yeah. but, but now it's like, that, that guy doesn't just disagree with me. That guy is morally bankrupt that is a a a a terrible individual and um it's not just that we have a political disagreement and then can go out and get a beer and argue over it it's we are um you know we are fighting each other in, in in tooth and claw and there's a little less in the political environment these days to give us a reason to sort of like examine those predispositions and 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 see if they're fully justified. I'm going to go on the limb here because this is kind of a far-reaching idea that I just thought up as you were talking. Um, I started compiling a thought. Um, since you, you you said now, which is true, I think I completely agree. When we look at an individual now, we view them differently compared to what we did maybe 15 years ago. Uh, we, we look at them as morally cor corrupt or bankrupt, as you mentioned. Uh, maybe even have disgust or disdain for the individual if they support some individual, if they believe some th uh, some kind of belief. Um, would this make it even more? How would you say? Would this increase the heavability factor? Because it almost triggers a reptilian, the reptilian part of our brain, if you want to use McLean's theory, um, or the limbic system. Does it have more of an impact? I guess is it more salient for those parts of the brain where it hits the survival mode now, more so than anything else? I'm yeah, not sure. I'm not sure it would increase the actual um, uh, heritability. I mean, it, it would it could certainly affect the impact um, that that part of our psychology that is under genetic influence. It could certainly affect how much that plays a role in actually driving our attitudes and behaviors. I mean, context and environment is, is absolutely critical. Um, I mean, if you're predisposed to get mad at extremists, regardless of which end of the political spectrum they're on, and you live in an environment where there's not that many political extremists, I mean, you're not mm. going to get mad about politics that often. But if you live in a political environment that is just chock a block of political extremists who are always up in your grill, then you're probably going to be mad a lot. That's a great point. Great point. I guess that old saying of uh, don't, talk don't talk politics really rings true today, doesn't it? 
Yeah. Well, and the sad thing is, is in this sort of environment, I mean, I, I think you could argue that this is exactly the sort of time when we should be talking to each other um, oh, yeah. um, uh, a little bit more. I mean, one of the things that this led us to do, I mean, one of the sort of like follow-up pieces of research that we did is we actually looked at um, how people perceive politics affecting their health. Huh. And, uh, you know, because we, we kind of got fascinated by this, whereas if, you know, it's genetically influenced and we can sort of like track brain activity and, and physiology and map that in some way onto political attitudes and behaviors, you know, could that have a, a pathological impact? I mean, could it, could it actually have an effect on your, your, your psychological or even your physical health? And we looked around, and it didn't seem like anybody had, had really put that together in a comprehensive way. So one of the things that we did in a follow-up study is we took the self-diagnostic batteries from Gamblers Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. And so these are just sort of like surveys that say things like, you know, have you ever lost a, a, a friend because, you drank, because of your drinking? Have you ever... Um, uh, uh, damaged a relationship that you valued because you were gambling too much, those kind of things. And we just substituted drinking and gambling with politics. And we were sort of like shocked at the, the results. I mean, this, this was a study that we did that was designed to be nationally representative of American adults. And, you know, like a fifth of American adults say that they're losing sleep because of politics. You know, oh, wow. similar numbers say that they can't, you know, they want to stop paying attention to politics, but they can't stay, stop paying attention to politics. Five percent of our samples said they'd considered suicide because of politics. Now, now when the percentage of the sample is, is, is that small, you've got to be a little bit careful because just, a, 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 you know, a small number of people can move that percentage around quite a, quite a bit. But... The fact that anybody was considering suicide because of, of, of politics, I, I, I found a little bit, um, a little bit eye-opening. But things like loss of sl sleep, fatigue, kind of like compulsively checking websites, those kind of things, and, and social media, um, it's at, at least according to that survey that we did. There's literally tens of American tens of millions of Americans that are, are, are dealing with that with that kind of fallout from politics and that's amazing and it's really a sad it's sad how how it's become uh, what other now this, that's part of one of the new findings you found over the last few years after your book uh, anything else that you discovered yeah one of the things and, and this uh, tracks right back to one of the questions that you were asking just a little while ago about whether um, you know, given environments and everything, whether things could could change. One of the things that we got interested in was exactly that question, and we wanted to know whether you know conservatives could become liberals or liberals could become conservatives. Um, you know, over the course of a lifespan, and the huge challenge there, of course, is you've got to have data that tracks the same individuals across forty or fifty years, and those data sets are a few and far between that have um, um, political items on them. But we did f manage to find one survey that uh, initially surveyed um, a bunch of Michigan high school students 
back in the late 60s and followed them through, I believe, the early or mid-90s and did ask political questions. So we looked at that. And what we found is that overwhelmingly, if you were a liberal at 18, you were a liberal when you were in your 50s. If you were a conservative when you were 18, you were a conservative when you were in your 50s. And there was some change, but not a, a lot. But if there was any change over the course of a lifespan, most people didn't change, but if you were going to change, you tended to move towards the right, not towards the left. So the, what we found was that, and I mean, if you think of the 60s to the 90s, there was, I mean, the political environment changed pretty radically during those, those decades. Absolutely. Um, at, at least in terms of, you know, whether you, viewed yourself conservative or liberal, that tended to stay fairly stable. I mean, the huge limitation on that is it's one group of people at over, you know, a, a long period of time, but one period of time. Would we find the same thing if we took a bunch of 18-year-olds in 1985 and revisited them today? Uh, honestly, we have no idea. Hmm, that's a good point, too. Kind of goes against the grain, or maybe not. Uh, well, yeah, I guess it does, because I think a lot of people used to think that uh, most children, and I'm talking children, I guess 18 or older, would go against their parents' ideology, but in, in fact, it really doesn't. Yeah, I mean, the, one of, because that survey, we actually had data on the parents. The parents were interviewed hmm. in the late 60s, too, and, and the, you know, this is, this is simpl oversimplifying it a little bit, but basically you end up your parents politically uh, uh, speaking. And that fits, and, and although this is survey data, that we have no um, genetic data whatsoever, that's exactly what you would expect with um, if political attitudes and behaviors are genetically influenced, is that, you know, especially as you mature into adulthood, your attitudes become similar to those of your parents. Um, you know, the, some of the study, not that we did, but like one of our PhD students, Pete Hatemi, did, he looked at um, the effect of genetic influence over the course of the lifespan, and effectively what he found was, you know, 18 to 24, those genetic influences tend to tamp down, and then the older you got, the greater the genetic influence. And that makes complete sense to us. I mean, you're 18, that's usually when it's the first time you're away from mom and dad. Maybe you're off at college, maybe you get a job and move out of the house, but you're doing new things and you're having new experiences. You know, you're, you're trying the novel and things get scrambled up there for a while, but, you know, the, the older you get, you, you tend to return to sort of like the, you know, similar sorts of outlook that your, your, your parents had. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. I was one of them. <laughs> well, it's so funny. I, I tell my class all the time, I say, you know what, I know you're young now, and you'll listen to music that's not the same as your parents. But by the time you hit your 40s, you're going to start listening to the music that your parents heard and say, oh, my mom and dad used to listen to this. And then it shifts. I don't know. At least for me, it did, and a lot of other people. I don't know. That could be another Yeah, I think it was study. Mark Twain who said when I was 18... My father was an incredibly stupid man, and it was amazing how smart he was by the time I reached 30. Yeah, that's right. Fascinating stuff. 
Again, folks, this is Professor Kevin Smith, and we're talking about his book, Predisposed uh, Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of Political Differences. And the neat thing about this book, folks, it's not pushing one side or the other at all. It's really just looking at science and biology and see how it influences our belief systems. Well, I guess my last question before we get ready to wrap up here in the last few minutes, um, do you, are you guys working on anything in the future? Any other studies in regards to this? Yeah, we're working on um, several sorts of studies. We um, are going to put another survey in the field around the November election uh, to uh, replicate and extend the stuff on how politics affects health. Um, we are currently doing a study examining how conservatives and liberals attend to visually look at different things in their environment. We're doing a study, we, we've just got some data in where we're looking at how people psychophysiologically react to um, online media, you know, like watching Rachel Maddow or, or, or Sean Hannity, um, what that does to people's um, psychophysiology and how it affects their, their reasoning um, uh, capabilities. So, I mean, the, the bad news about what we, what we uh, are, are, are doing and what we have done is I've spent 20 years studying this stuff, and all I know is I don't know a lot. <laughs> yeah, the, good news is, the good news is I've got <laughs> my employment prospects in terms of sort of like running out of things to do are pretty much zero at this point. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Job security is always of the essence. Yeah. Actually, I did have one more question. I'm sorry, I lied. Uh, quick question. Any differences at all gender-wise or ethnicity-wise? Um, it depends on what you're um, uh, asking. So, for example, one of the things that we found on Disgust, for example, is that there are gender differences there. Hmm. If you use standard validated self-report surveys, um, women tend to report that they are higher in disgust sensitivity than men. If you look at disgust sensitivity looking at physiological reactions, there's no difference. So we, oh. we found that really fascinating. You know, is there a socialization um, component there? Um, on the public health sorts of things that we had done, one of the things that we were expecting to finding, find, especially given the current environment was we were expecting to find racial and ethnic differences in these sort of, you know, self-reported effects of, of, of politics on people's health. And, and we just didn't find them. They just weren't there in our data. So that no. was kind of a non-finding that we were a little, that we were a little puzzled by. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we're going to uh, effectively redo the study because, you know, one sample, um, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily deliver you a, a, a complete and accurate picture. So we're, we're going to see if that holds up in, a, in another sample. I can't wait to find out. Is there any way for people to, to learn more about your results when they come out? Where can we go? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I doubt any of your listeners <laughs> want to spend an awful lot of time checking out academic um, uh, 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 journals, uh, you know, that's, that's really the most hard. But, um, you know, one of the things that I always do is, like, when we have out a new study, I always tweet it out. Um, 
you know, I try not to be too self-promotional on my Twitter account, but anytime we have anything published, I always tweet it out and um, put out a link. And, and you know, oftentimes if we get preliminary results that look really exciting, I'll, I'll just tweet those out even though they're not peer-reviewed. And my Twitter handle is UNL Poli-Sci Guy. So U-N-L-P-O-L-I-S-C-I-G-U-Y. Got it. UNL Poli-Sci, folks. So U-N-L-P-O-L-I-S-C-I. Um, great stuff. That's good. That's good. And do you give an abstract version on your Twitter or no? <laughs> no, well, I just usually link to it. Okay, link to it. All right, cool. And then usually what I do is I just sort of like, you know, there's not a ton you can do but in, in 250 characters, but I, I just try to summarize what we found and, and offer the link. Awesome. So we make sure we follow him on Twitter, folks. I will be following him to make sure I keep up to speed. Professor Smith, thank you so much for spending the time with us. No, I appreciate the invitation. Good talking to you. Likewise. Thank you, everyone. If you want to support our podcast, make sure to share and subscribe. Thanks for listening. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.